Welcome back to the Alexander Schmidt Podcast 041, episode 041. This is a conversation with Mr. Wesley Shantz, our, our newly named contemplative conversations where we, we, um, we, we engage in a concentration, a, a shared center of attention, where we try to in, uh, find the fine nuances and details in something that perhaps we all as a culture have seen in the broad strokes. And well, welcome back, Wes. Hey, good morning. Glad to be good back. Morning. Good morning. Yeah, and that's uh, that's something that I should address. A couple things. I'm sorry to the listeners that we I haven't recorded much this week, but I'm building new curriculum uh, for my ninth graders. I, I did an Oedipus unit this time around, and I'm building all the a lot of creative energy out of me, as well as I'm completing Dante's Paradiso with my sophomores. And some one funny coincidence or piece of serendipity or providence or synchronicity depending on how scientific or religious you happen to be is that Dante's Paradiso uh the entire comedy takes place during Easter weekend starting on Good Friday and ending on Easter uh so he comes back to life on the same day that Jesus returns into the world um suggesting some idea that once you have the right ideal in mind you can embody it in the world which makes the world better which is a beautiful idea, but we are finishing our our foray into the Divine Comedy the same week as Easter. Um, we have spring break this week, and like my last lecture will be the the Tuesday after Easter on Dante's Paradiso. And uh. believe it or not, I did not plan that at all. <laughs> cool. I intended to be done much earlier. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, isn't that interesting? Um, yeah, and um, one thing I'd also like to do is make a shout out to Rise and Grind. My good friend Perry Burt Worth from Milwaukee has several episodes on there now, and he's um he's a very successful entrepreneur, com- computer scientist, um, uh, and uh, jujitsu practitioner. He was the first black belt uh, ever awarded a black belt under the black belt we both studied under, uh, John Friedland, Professor John Friedland, who I believe is a three-stripe black belt now um and i'm very proud of both him and perry um but perry's also a very good person which i love but something that he focuses on in his podcast since he has so many good friends so many family members so many business ventures and martial arts ventures going on is how to efficiently use one's time and how to conduct oneself at uh, uh different times of the day and in fact his his uh show is at 8 15 a.m on saturdays which mm. you know what a god awful time to be awake from people. <laughs> but but I thought about that, and well, you and I are both early risers, aren't we? Yeah. Yeah, Wes yeah. and and uh, in fact, today we're we're talking at about eight thirty a.m. and we spoke last night, and we knew that we would be able to, we knew we could trust each other to be up and not only be up but be rather functional at this time because we both get up actually much earlier than this to yeah. work on our creative endeavors. Right. Right So what have you been spending your morning doing? And in fact, I know you didn't just do this this morning because we have lived in the same house before. That's on my guess. We should tell the listeners we were Uh we were summer roommates at one time during St. John's. And I would always wake up in the morning. You were always up before me at that time. (laughs) You would you would still have your glasses on and you would usually be writing. And I, I, I would usually probably try and say something ironic or disparaging because I was embarrassed you were up earlier and using your time better than I was. <laughs> but uh, I have to say that I, I, I was 
I probably acted that way because I was impressed and didn't want to be. Oh gosh. Yeah. Well, yeah, go on. It's tough. You know, when you, uh, when you first get up in the morning, it's always like the most tempting thing is just to stay in bed and go back to sleep for a while. Uh, that doesn't stop being the case, at least not usually. Um, but then, uh, but then if you do, you know, if you do swing out of bed and, and it helps if you have cats. So I've got three cats now and they like my face and purr on me and wake me up and stuff. So then I, then I'm up, you know, and then I go and I, uh, yeah, I always try to write a little bit first thing. Um, Lately, I've been mostly working on uh, translation that uh, I, I was supposed to work on a long time ago and it just kind of fell by the wayside, but I'm finally working on it. Um, it's a translation of an Uruguayan author, uh, Pedro Figari, who mm. is not well known outside of Uruguay. <laughs> not really that well known in Uruguay, but he, <laughs> he, a, uh, he's a painter. Primarily, he's known for his, his art, um, and but he's also got this... Uh, incredible body of of uh stories essays it's it's very interesting anyway so working on that you know little by little each morning i do a little of that i write a little bit of stuff for my blog and you know for this and that but this morning i was working on a poem about stars actually and i and i i I quote um i don't directly quote but i definitely refer to or try to echo what dante does at the end of each of the canticles Mm. he has the word star right stars very good yeah. yeah so i put that towards the end of the poem i thought that would be kind of so neat. just as my week ended with the stars of the paradiso so has <clears throat> your week begun with writing about the stars of right. the paradiso at the beginning of your day on sunday there you go Let's talk about death and rebirth good friday and easter sunday <laughs> And, you know, stars like the leaves of the trees are those things which die and are reborn every day, too, right? And so that seems to be part of the message of what heaven is in um, Dante's Paradiso, that when you lose your ideal in life, perhaps because you have lost everything and the dominant structure in which you existed, which would have been Dante as politician in Florence, Mm -hmm. that makes room sometimes if you can survive the chaos of the the ensuing day or night um for a new order or a new a new dawn a new star to rise that can perhaps rise even higher than the one that you lost before well the thing is like the stars are always there it's only from our point of view that they Mm. go away and come back right and so it's like dante he doesn't uh ever really lose the order because it's always there. It's like even his hell is incredibly orderly, even in the midst of some uh, some danger, right? And and some elements of chaos. But they're all within. He's got this incredible, you know, framework that he's working within. And and as you describe, you know, it has to do with time. It has to do with the the holy uh, days. And and so he's definitely caught um, by a safety net, you know, of of a deeper order than the political. You know, he's caught in the cosmic world. Right. And he's, yeah, and ultimately it's all going to be okay. (laughs) Yeah. Well, something that comes out from the Empyrean, or when you get to the top of heaven, the 10th sphere, as it was, you go from circles to spheres. Things go from two dimensional to three dimensional between hell and heaven. Uh, As if, yeah, right. As if they go from more subjective to objective or more imaginary to real, something like that. I would say the subjective to objective is the better distinction. Um, because hell 
is subjective for Dante. Yes. Though there is an objective element to it. It is objective or transcendent in that it can exist for all people, but the particular route by which you get there is yours alone. Though you may be an exemplar, or you certainly will be an exemplar of some sin according to categorical type, just like many people before you, which is the point of Dante showing several examples of every single sin and exactly where it gets somebody yeah. in terms of their reputation, fame, and effect on the society around them. Essentially, they sow discord and dissolve that which gives them all the gifts which they enjoy in their lives. Um, <clears throat> and Dante has to suffer that too because he gets exiled even though he finds himself like Jesus to be unjustly persecuted. Um, and, and, well, he wishes to consciously embody his suffering in a very uh, similar way to that too. But I'm, I'm sorry, the second we get back on radio, I, I start losing my point again because I don't have anything to reference. Um, <laughs> it's okay. But, oh, oh, yeah, 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 you were saying about time. Sorry, just one thing about the Empyrean is that the Empyrean encircles not only all the heavens below it, but also the earth. And in the earth, Dante locates hell, which means that the Empyrean, which is alternatively defined as the mind of God, mm. the mind of God encompasses all heaven and earth and also hell. You mentioned that hell is ordered and that it is ordered in a way much deeper than the social order. You might even say that it, it, there is something of a biological order there in that being treacherous towards other humans or being untrustworthy is something we do not even breed for, right? <laughs> in fact, as we've learned from um, the work of Jordan B. Peterson is that we have the whites of our eyes, uh, unlike, unlike gorillas, because we reference by looking at each other's eyes. And in fact, you have cultural norms arise because of that biological fact. Take off your sunglasses when you're talking to somebody. Look me in the eye when you shake my hand. It's like these are not simply cultural constructions. They come about from what gives us our evolutionary advantage. Um, <clears throat> and so and – so, the idea is that a structure was laid down within the world and within man that allowed for both good and evil so that it could allow for that which is beyond good or evil, which is human free choice. Yeah, yeah. And what, and what Dante offers is he says, well, look, if you make these sorts of decisions, and hell is very much structured hierarchically, with several sub circles and some sub pockets. Pockets. Back, the pockets. The eight, yeah, the eighth circle has has uh, ten pockets in it, ten bulges, ten bulges. You know, as if they're like warts, right? Like outgrowths that people who have gone against their own forms. Well, so that seems to be the idea that if you learn discernment, which will free your will you can consciously embody one of the constellations or exemplary lives which have been lived. And there have been so many exemplary lives, both from the Greco-Roman tradition, or excuse me, not both, but from the Greco-Roman tradition, the Hebrew tradition, and the Christian tradition Dante will draw heavily from, that you can then live a life worth living that shows 
um, the depth of your discernment and care for being in a way that living a life of say dantistic sin yeah. does not simply because it makes you devolve away from the form in a, in a neoplatonic sort of way um, uh, uh, that it makes your story less worthy of being immortal and thus limits the scope of your being because your being is your story. If you consider what you are throughout the course of space and time during your life, that you exist within space time, that you are in adapting and sort of evolving uh, character within a, an adapting and sort of involving environment or world. Yeah, that's also like the, the kind of unfolding through time also includes this kind of repetition over time. Yes, like music. Yeah, yeah. So, so the, uh, the idea that you can sort of see someone in the past, you know, some ideal or some uh, model, you know, whatever, you can see that person, you can read their work and, and sort of consider that. You can then see, you know, role models in your in your own life, you know, peers or, or older people, mentors, whatever, um, people you either know or people that you hear about, whatever. So you have all these kinds of positive models out there to um, to um, to try to live up to. It seems very unfortunate then that you know, like on the other hand, you have this kind of selfish desire to be really different too. You know, so it's like, oh, I don't want to be like you know, anyone else, I'm unique, I'm totally my own person, right? And so that very thing, uh, which, you know, is, is passionate, and which can drive you to, to do great things, can, uh, unfortunately, also sort of like, you know, lead you astray and sort of blind you to the, the, the larger patterns of, of which you're a part, you know, and which that's right, and, and actually keep you from becoming the unique thing that you're supposed to by denying your capacity to transform yourself and the world around you in, in so far as you can make that which is potential into that which is actual, yeah. uh, which is what we constantly seem to be doing as humans. In fact, that's one of the big Aristotelian questions. He says, is this, uh, is this tree potentially a desk or is this plank of wood potentially a desk? And I thought that's very good because it depends on how you use the word. You can say that the tree is potentially a desk, but there are several different stages still between it and it becoming a desk. And also the power to transform does not exist within the tree to make a desk. It exists within man, um, which is, which is the interesting thing about that. But, but the plank of wood is more potentially the desk in that it can become a desk in one step. And so Aristotle yeah. contrasts this with a metaphor about who has more potential, a child or a general. And again, the words mean used in different ways. Uh, the child has more potential life paths he might take and yeah. more potential to grow physically and uh, intellectually because he has not covered as much ground, but yeah. the general has vastly more potential to act. He yes. has almost infinite avenues of action available to him with an army underneath him, especially if he's successful in any particular moment. And so how we uh, even look at these terms is very interesting. Um, but, um, Sorry, losing my thought one more, one more time just because the things you say are so interesting. Oh, yes, the passions. And so the thing about it is that if we fail to make appropriate distinctions and understand what is most human in us, which we might understand to be the transforming aspect of consciousness, how we explore 
something external or even internal, a thought or even a physical object or even a person or a new game or a new subject. Mm -hmm. And in exploring it, we have to be courageous because it makes us feel nervous because we don't understand it very well and we, we lose our footing. And, but in exploring it, we start to understand it. And in understanding it, we start to enjoy it more, to like it, to see what makes sense in it. It, it, it seems to be making something that doesn't make sense, makes sense, gives us the greatest joy. And then we want to share it with other people yeah, when yeah. we have finally made sense of it, because then we know it. It's part of our known territory, part of our, our map. And then yeah. we want to share a piece of that map because we know it's useful. And right. so and we want to play. We want to let others in on, on the game, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes, because when others are in the game, when two or three are gathered in my name, it's like, then you're playing a game. Yeah. And then and then and then that's a whole new thing to explore and a whole new way to explore yourself and a whole new way to explore your friends. Can mm. you play this game? Are you yeah. any good at it? Will we end up in the same position in this game as we did in the last game yeah. we played? Or will you be better at this? And if you're better at this, what is it that you, what skill is it that you have? What attribute is it that enables you to be better? Did you work harder at this game? Do you have a background in this game? Yeah. Do you have an innate capacity that makes you really good at this game? Like, like, are we now playing basketball and you're taller than I am? Um, <laughs> and now, you know, you have long arms and does that give you a big rebounding advantage to make sure that you always beat me, you know? It's, yeah, uh, yeah. And I mean, so thinking about like, um, just going back to the idea of the, uh, of the morning, right? Before, uh, before we leave that sort of metaphor behind, um, it made me think, and I was kind of thinking about this too, with uh, with respect to the the individualizing versus the uh, community of, or sort of traditional uh, perspective. Uh, Nietzsche, right? Nietzsche uh, says somewhere I don't remember where now. He's maybe a few different places. He'll talk about his morning thoughts. You know, when he wakes up in the morning, he has these beautiful thoughts, and then he sort of like writes out and writes out all those those paragraphs and sections and books and then and by the end of the book he'll kind of come back to wondering so what became of those morning thoughts you know uh, oh. and, and he'll sort of muse on that as a way to sort of close the work I, I can't remember now which book it is again it could be more than one but he's such a he's such an interesting case for me he's he's sort of like he he seems to have been caught between like, so am I a poet or am I a, um, am I a philosopher? Am I psychologist? Like, what am I meant to be? Like, what is my potential calling me towards? And he, he seems to have kind of foundered on the, the difficulty of fitting himself into a tradition, which, which had sort of by that point seemed to have been played out, you know, Dante's in it when it's really alive and still growing. And by the time Nietzsche comes along, the, this, the tradition seems to go sterile. And so he's sort of at a loss. Like, what do I do? You know? Yeah, well, I'd say, I'd say it's more like Dante sees it all falling apart and sees its actual secular repercussions mm -hmm. in the dismemberment of the Roman state into Florence and the, and the papal state and the various uh, regions mm -hmm. uh, that occupy the Italian peninsula at that time. So he's like fighting as hard as he possibly can because it's still a fight. It strikes me that what you notice about Nietzsche is that he sees when, you know, when he famously says God is dead and we'll never find enough water to wash off the blood from our hands. Killed him. He's, yes. he's, he's like the person 
who who is the divine sacrifice uh, in a Dionysiac way in that he's the one sitting on his knees looking to the heavens with blood on his hands thinking oh god what mm-hmm. what do we do now um yeah. but speaking more to our situation yeah it's almost as if we've grown up with that crusted blood on our hands and it has been a birthright of us mm-hmm. and so what I think our project has been as young educators who wish to transcend the mentality of the sixties that's perforated our culture. And I mean, one of cultural disestablishment, Mm. one one of not only disestablishing that, which is bad in culture, like the apartheid or colonialism, but also all the good things as well. And so it's more our job as conscious individuals um, as the highest representations of what a state can be to think through these issues these secular and these sacred issues because we have access to the leisure time the health the resources the communities uh necessary in order to understand the the, the most difficult thoughts that have ever been thought in the best way they have ever been thought through Um, because conditions are so set in our favor in order to do this. I mean, where I live, it never gets cold. (laughs) It's it's wonderful. It's like a Greece. It's a down here in San Diego or in Athens in that respect. Uh, perhaps, perhaps not as many philosophers, certainly as many sophists. Um, (laughs) there's so many many people like it's it's unreal how it's not just like the quality of of access but also the the amount like you can reach so many people now with a a great work you know it's accessible to anyone at any time they can get on there and read you know pretty much anything they want um it's a sort of a matter of getting them to want to do it (laughs) that's the question uh but yeah i think I think just being that kind of role model is a big part of that though. You know, having, having somebody that you look up to who says, Hey, this is like worth reading. This is worth thinking about and talking about and getting, getting, when you know that that's, that's so powerful. I think because one thing I know that we had planned to talk about and so we'll actually get to something on the list, Uh, which is, isn't that the wonderful thing about a good conversation that you might have a list going in there being like, okay, maybe, maybe I won't feel the magic today. Maybe I'll need to, you know, Maybe we'll just need to talk about some of these calcified, interesting ideas we've been wanting to talk about. And then poof, we have an entire conversation and we haven't touched on any of it. I suppose it lets you know just how far attention can range and interest can range. And the Achaean gods are described as moving fast as thought and the Phaeacian ships in the Odyssey are described as moving as fast as thought. And Dante up in heaven experiences his attention flashing back down to the earth 6,000 miles away it's described as which means that attention like Hermes with his winged sandals or the golden snitch from Hmm. Harry Potter is that which can cover the most range in terms of space or time and in so doing can fill out your map of reality and being to a fuller extent so that you do not fall through it. Um, But something interesting you were saying about embodying ideals is that Dante's conception of the Trinity, Um, I believe, suggests exactly that idea, Um, which is also paralleled by the fact that Dante 
goes into hell on Good Friday, just like Jesus did. Even within his own interpretation within the text, Jesus has done that and harrowed hell and taken the, the Hebrew patriarchs out. But he leads Rahab, the prostitute of Jericho, at the head. Oh, cool. Because she, of course, she, of course, reminds him of his mother, uh, of Mary, the person who might be perceived as fallen, who saves everybody. And that's based on the interpretation that Mary and becoming pregnant with Jesus would not have been portrayed, would not have been seen by her fellow women and men in the poor city she was from as a divine carrier of God. That is certainly not how anybody would have seen her. Not the first conclusion uh, they're bound to draw no, there, right? No, not the first conclusion they would have drawn. And that's also a fairly common motif uh, in uh, Ovid's Metamorphoses and in the Greek, um, the Greek myths, uh, being impregnated by a god and the consequences mm. of that. And uh, often it means persecution in the world. And that certainly seems to have been what the case was in this story as well. And so... <clears throat> and so... Uh, I want to hear about yes. So, yeah, thank you, thank you, thank you. These, <laughs> I, I need my mind needs to get strong enough to maintain these branches. But um, so Dante has the Trinity represented at the top of heaven as three circles of light, which he can see after he unblinds himself or enlightens himself mm-hmm. by drinking a river of light with his eyes that then reveals itself as a divine circle um, of gold, like a crown or halo. <clears throat> And so these three circles are all different colors. And the father circle is described as being the, so similar to the sun circle that it is like a rainbow being reflected by another rainbow. Oh, and we actually have some beautiful double rainbow uh, videos and pictures. And <laughs> I remember that famous triple rainbow one from a few years back where the guy is just so awestruck and taken with wonder that the whole world felt the need to make fun of him. Um, he's like, Whoa, look, it's a double rainbow. Wow. Well, it, yeah. And so, <clears throat> and they're connected by the Holy spirit, which draws them together like a living flame. And so, and in the sun circle, sun S O N there is an effigy of man vaguely inscribed. Hmm. And so how I took that to mean was that the father is the ideal in heaven, which the son embodies on earth and the Holy spirit is the connection or relationship between them. And yeah. thus insofar as one embodies one's ideal on the earth, one feels closer to God through one's relationship or the Holy spirit slash one is closer to God in that one is embodying more of the ideal, which is identified with God, the father in the world, which means that one is literally living a more exemplary life, which is more representative of the divine, which means more of the divine shines out famous thigh from one into the theater of one's environment and thus can be perceived and imitated by other humans. And in fact, that is one of the things that makes us so special. And in fact, Peterson believes this is what gives us a capacity for language, that we have such a tremendous capacity for imitation. That's certainly how we learn 
all our games. We imitate first, learn, and be able to articulate the rules second. <clears throat> yeah, so the, the Trinity is presented usually in sort of dogmatic uh, terms. It's a, it's a great mystery, right? And mm -hmm. it's, the thing, it's sort of like one of those things, sort of like the, the incarnation and the resurrection. It's these sort of tenets which you must... In order to be a good Christian, you must just take on faith. Like, don't try to understand it. Because mm -hmm. It's possible for your 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 intellect it has to be through your faith that you um, you get you get this thing, or 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 the communion, right? The bread, right? That's the body. Sure. Of Christ. So there's all these sort of mysteries, and so it's well, I think that that you know that it's still within your rights to sort of like interpret it poetically. Um, and, and like you're saying, like sort of shine this, this light upon the thing. Um, it doesn't remove the, the mystery of the faith. And in, in fact, it, you know, it makes it, uh, into this sort of beautiful play of, um, of concepts. Uh, and if anything, that's like, that's something that would be, um, I don't know, in, in a way more difficult, more mysterious, right? Like by what power are you able to do this thing? Like, cause when I, when I, I've read only a little bit of Paradiso, but I have read the very end and it's an, it's an overwhelming experience to read that because, yes. because it is, it's sort of like you can almost grasp it, but not quite. And it's just amazing that he's, he's able to do that. Um, and so, yeah, I just like, I just like how you can have this paradox where it's both a great mystery and, and full of light at the same time. Well, and what I, that's exactly right. It's the great unknown, which is the dragon from which we get all our gold. It's the greatest mysteries that have the most gold, the most information in them. They are the highest contenders and thus teach you the most about the world and yourself. It's, <clears throat> it's when you're truly struggling against something that you learn who you are and what you're capable of, the Jacob versus the angel idea here. The great mysteries are the great sharpening stones, I would say. The fact is they will never be exhausted. The, the fact is just, and this is why, you know, throughout time, how one speaks about God has been difficult. So the original idea, there are three ways, um, traditionally speaking. The first way is through negation. Mm -hmm. um, God is not this. God is not that. The second way is through um, um, superlatives. God is the best of this. God is the, perfect. God is, uh, you know, yeah, exactly. The perfect version of this. And the third way is by analogy that <clears throat> how we use language to apply to us applies differently to God, but that's the best we have as a tool. So that's how we have to talk which I, I think is a fantastic solution. Um, but I think the idea is actually that the divine is language, and that's why you can't talk about <laughs> the Tao or the divine. It is the capacity for consciousness, the transformative capacity in man that not only transforms him, but the environment around him, and which is constantly acting, which is why our, our culture, our hairstyles, our language – is always changing. Um, <clears throat> the tools with which even we use. I mean, I was reading a book by Ray Kurzweil recently where he was like, you know, when does a piece of technology become an artifact? <laughs> and it seems to be like 15 years after obsolescence because it's like a typewriter. Is that, is that a functional object or is that like a, a cool set piece to have in your room? <clears throat> and, you know, three or four hipsters might argue 
that it's functional, but it's like, no, you know, not, not really not. It's not functional in the same way that learning to wield a katana now is not a functional way to become a warrior. <laughs> you know, you can learn that and that's very neat, but if somebody takes out a gun, you're going to be, you know, you know, you're not going to be as useful um, right. at that moment. That's not the state of modern warfare is the idea. It is. I mean, you could still defend yourself, uh, especially against people who didn't have any sorts of weapons and certainly sure. against people who didn't know how to use katanas. But that's just not how we do the fighting these days. It's mostly, um, <laughs> mostly to look cool, as you as you said, with the typewriter. Right? It's a sort of an, and it's, it's a cool thing. You know, it's it's interesting, but it's no longer, you know, taken seriously for its functional it's original right. functional yeah. right there's not widespread agreement that that's going to be the weapon of war um, <laughs> and in fact I, that might be a, a really interesting question what is the widespread agreement on what the weapon of war is because oh no it's clearly know, we, words it's words okay yeah no interesting and so the, the the warfare is whether we're going to accept that consciousness exists or not it seems mm-hmm. he's going back to your your comments about the structured organization of the inferno and the entire divine comedy is it's when we collapse the distinctions in the world or desire to destroy inequality through destroying our surplus, which is the only way to destroy inequality, because the moment there's a surplus, just like in the game Monopoly, some people are going to have more than others. Though we do know that the top 1% does change constantly throughout America. Families are always coming to prominence and losing it, as it were. And uh, you actually have a 10% possibility of making it into that 1% at some point. Oh, wow. Which means you have a chance. You have a chance, and nobody's trying to keep you down. Um, but um, I'm sorry. Where was I going with that again? <laughs> started out saying something about uh, destroying inequality. So, right, 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 right. When you destroy inequality, well, the conditions which make inequality possible are also the conditions which make a, a structured society possible um uh uh, the fact of inequality comes about not because anybody is attempting to oppress any other person uh, in a free market society anyway but simply because that's how the society evolves given that there are differing levels of competency and also um differing um not only differing levels of competency which you can see in literally every sort of work especially say surgeons what sort of surgeon do you want working on you um but, but also, uh, oh, what is the word I'm looking for here? So without an ability to go in a different direction and go further than one's peers, one has no access to the nuances that exist within this world. It flattens out the playing field, and without a way up, there's no way to access the incentive reward system. You just have the consumatory reward system, which is you know eat some food and then it's done. Yeah. The way, but the higher way of living, the Neoplatonic sort of way, or the Jungian way, you might say, the way where you try and transform yourself so that you become more like the ideal which you serve or pursue, is that it is precisely moving up those nuances of the sort of mental or spiritual pyramid in which we exist that gives us the greatest pleasure in life. And also enables us to live the best and most exemplary possible life where we constantly are climbing or pushing the rock up like Sisyphus or dragging our, cr- our cross up to Golgotha's uh, hill um, 
or like Moses or climbing the mountain or like Zeus or on the Mount Ida. We're always, when we say that nothing matters or that everything is equal or that necessary distinctions that we have made are simply arbitrary, we destroy. And even if that were all true, which it certainly is not, we destroy the capacity to live a good life of conscious struggle towards something good. Uh-huh. Then we are all left like Achilles in his dark tent, like Dante in his dark wood, where it's like, well, if everything's good and bad and there's nothing, nothing different and we're all just imperfect or we're just as perfect as we can be, why should we do anything? Yeah. We're like the lotus eaters in the Odyssey. Um, yeah. I mean, it's like and- you leave open the possibility that things are not as you believe them to be, but you don't start from the proposition that nothing has any meaning. Because if you start there, you never progress anywhere. And why but, would you? You know, if you somehow if you somehow go beyond good and evil, as Nietzsche would say, and you arrive at something like that, well, you know, good for you, but you've probably actually um, ordered your life according to certain principles which you no longer uh, consciously acknowledge. But if you start from but if you start from the principle well, nothing really matters, it's all relative, and you never actually even get too good and evil, then you haven't gone beyond them. You've just never even met them. You've never encountered them. And it's like, that, yeah. the thing is that you can reflect for like five minutes and realize that those things are, are in you. You know, there, there is an adversary, but it's not out there in the world. You know, like you said, it's, 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 it's inside you, right? Well, it's and insofar as you don't recognize it inside you, where are you going to locate it? And we certainly see evidence of that. That's out in the world, right? You project it. You project. And so it's precisely the people that do not, that have not spent the, con- the time consciously suffering the fact that they are the villains that they need to defeat that project <laughs> that villain out in the world. And, you know, I told, I was saying that I was teaching Oedipus the King, Oedipus Tyrannus this last uh, week, right? And so something interesting about that that came out in seminar on Friday with the students is this. Oedipus believes himself to be a king, a hero at the beginning of the story and acts like one and has the social perception that he is a hero. Uh, But by the end, as disgraced as he is, he actually is a hero because mm -hmm. what has he done? He's done exactly what he set out to do. He found the source of the problem. It happened to be him, though he had no idea it could be. And then he removes the source of the problem from the situation. He solves the plague, even though he caused it. And so what does that mean? It means that in order to become the hero that he had a bad conscience about thinking but knowing that he wasn't, in order to become that hero, he had to recognize that he wasn't the hero that everybody believed him to be, but that he was actually the villain who was causing the very problem itself, that he had to realize that he was essentially the devil himself, that he had done the worst things possible, and that the the plague that was – or the plague that was afflicting his society was him. Its source yeah. was him. That the problem, the problem yeah. was not to be found in anybody else and that the best thing he could do wasn't solving other people's problems represented by the Sphinx, right? It's like you're a magician. You're magic if you can solve other people's problems. But no, no, no. It's not enough for him to solve the kingdom's problems or the world's problems. He has to solve his own problem. And what is his problem? Himself. Boom. That's yeah. the answer to man. That's the consciousness occurring in Westworld to the androids there. Yeah. 
when you see yourself as the problem, as the villain who is bringing evil out in the world, boom, what do you now have? That's responsibility. You're conscious of the fact that you need to keep yourself from bringing the evil into the world, which you clearly perceive around you. And then you think, oh, that's a good thing to do. Don't let all the things I know I do, which are evil and mean and resentful and arrogant and deceitful at any level of analysis, either small or large, you know, do fewer of those. Right. right. And, and you are able to, like, you are the only person able to, but you are able to, you know, it's very yes. refreshing to, to realize that. Yeah. You know, I was noticing that the other day, I was getting angry about how I was pouring. I, I got into this stupid habit of, uh, uh, I pour, <laughs> I use the wrong hand, my left hand instead of my right hand to pour water into my water bottle. And so I, <laughs> I put my left hand across the nozzle sometimes so that I'll actually risk putting water all over my arm when if I just used my right hand, it would be on the other side of the water bottle and I would get no water on my hand. And I kept getting annoyed by this and annoyed and annoyed. And I was like, oh, you're getting annoyed because you're stupid. Because <laughs> you need to make this change. You keep noticing that you're making an error, even though it's a small one. And instead of my first instinct, like my parents taught me, and this is something I've had to unlearn and am unlearning uh-huh. was just just get irritated and resentful of the world and the fact that physics don't work in this way and, um, <laughs> and ignore it because it's a small issue and then just keep ignoring things. And that's, that's the pattern of ignoring small issues, right? Which that's yeah. the problem with doing that. But instead of just ignoring it because it was small, I changed it because it was small and my life became a little bit better. And I respected myself more because I actually was conscious of a problem and I fixed the problem and I set the pattern of fixing small problems. And it leads to me, you know, sometimes when I start doing that in a day, just to generalize a little, then I start straightening up a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's like, if you start your day like that, sort of like how we were describing with say making your bed or doing mm-hmm. some reading, I read, mm-hmm. just like you said, you write, I read in order to start thinking. And you can attest to the fact that I'll often start sending text messages to you <laughs> and a couple other friends, like long uh, thoughts on thoughts, but it, it's like, I'm revving up my engine yeah. for yeah. the day. I'm setting the pattern of being contemplative, of concentrating, of focusing mm. on what's important and sharing that with others during the day. Yeah. Well, for me, it's like looking people in the eye doesn't come naturally. So that's one that I have to just like mm. consciously work on. Right. Um, but it is something that over time, you know, by people letting me know that that's like weird not to look at people. <laughs> I, yeah. I, like, I figured it out. Oh, like I, this is something I just have to like actually make a, a little bit of effort to do. And, and then I, it has a good, has a good impact or like standing up straight. You know, I always yes. hunch. I've always hunched since I was young and it's just, you know, something that I have to consciously work on or else I fall back into bad. And, habits. and so yeah. that's the great thing about having imperfections and why when Peterson says that he considers it a form of child abuse to tell children that they're perfect, I totally understand. And that's something I actually teach to my students. I'm like, if you weren't perfect, if you lived in Eden or on Ojigia from the Odyssey where the food just grows and you experience no pain and you have just a, a beautiful either Eve or Calypso with you, what would you do? And I'm like, think it through. Like two hours. That's pretty fun, right? Eight hours, four days, two weeks, a year. It starts to grow dark, right? 
And that's, that's so interesting. And so, but if you have some imperfections, if the world's not so good and maybe you're not even so good, you're more like the mud monster from spirited away than the, the, the dragon spirit he turns out to be. Um, it's like, well, does that give you something to do that can bring hope and positive emotion into your life? Because when you work on your imperfections and the, and the things you don't do well, you don't even need to focus on simply the physical imperfections, which certainly you have, unless you are Denzel Washington, who's used as the model for symmetry. Um, you can, it could just be any of your skills, right? How well do you type? How well do you, how good is your handwriting? Do you know cursive? Are you, are you as kind in your interactions as you could be? Um, well, how good are you at, you know, what the sports you play or the instrument you play? Do you play all the instruments? Can you play every sport? You know, there are a million, there are infinite things that you can improve at all the time. And in recognizing that rather than um, running from that, it can, it fills your life with meaning because then you're meeting all your, your, then when you meet your own, uh, your, your own imperfections, rather than indulging in insecurity and running in fear from those fear or anxiety inducing moments, you can fill yourself with hope by by embracing the challenge, by embracing yeah. that this is now part of your life. This is something you now recognize that you have a deficiency in. And in recognizing, it gives you the responsibility to try and improve to, towards proficiency. In fact, when I first started Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, you know, it took me three weeks to submit somebody. I was at a very rough gym. And I had to toughen up. Right. But, but in recognizing how bad I was at that, I would be running away from a dragon by just not attempting to get good. It's like all these guys can beat me. If I just give up, then I will, <laughs> they will always have always been able to beat me. It was the same yeah. with CrossFit. I joined it. I felt too old. I had an injured knee. There were some young college kids. I was in grad school. I thought it was more for them, but they were all so much fitter than I was at that time that it was like, well, isn't that cowardly for me? to just give up on this because I see that they're all so much better. And in fact, as you know, by the end of it, by the end of my career at, at in grad school, you know, I was competing with all of them and competing with people on a, a grander level, um, which, you know, I would have never expected that. The big, the big thing I took from that is when I first saw somebody do a ring muscle up, I thought that's impossible. I would rip my shoulder off. And then, you know, now I've done workouts where I've done 50 ring muscle ups. Um, yeah. And, uh, I think that all these endeavors just go to show that, well, that's what a good life can be. You encounter something you didn't expect. It shows you to have weaknesses you didn't know. And in trying to fill those weaknesses, you become more conscious of who you are and what you're capable of. And you can end up doing things that you would have never imagined because your imagination to some extent has to reflect the reality around you. And so without the conditions that you produce through making changes in your life, your imagination doesn't even have access to what you could possibly be. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, within that, I think I'd like to kind of end by turning to yeah. the, the concentration question though, because it's like, okay, there's like an infinite number of things you could work on mm. right? theoretically, but there's a limited time, you know, you yes. don't have all the time in the world. Well, maybe in some sense, you know, if you, if you think about like, uh, so sort of getting into science fiction or, or, you know, incredibly distant descendants or whatever you do have sure. all the time, in the world. but, but you personally, you know, can only work on so many things. So how do you, 
how do you sort of concentrate your time to the best of uh, to to make the best use of it? You know, how do you concentrate your attention on the on the best possible things that you want to you want to focus on? It seems like there's sort of a few different answers to that, right? Like on the one hand, yes. you, nothing nothing really matters, so just do what you feel, right? Okay. That's the relative. Yeah. And then on the other hand, the other extreme would be there's only one thing that really matters, right? And it's and it's this this tenet of faith or of ideology or of, of whatever, whatever someone, you know, told me it was, and now I believe that, and I'm gonna, I'm just gonna do that one thing. And that, you know, can have positive or negative. Um, yeah, uh, and uh, I, think, I, I, think, I think part of it comes from taking seriously the notion of the call, which is again, one of those mysteries, right? That yeah. we believe in, but we don't, we don't like that we believe in it. So we pretend we don't believe in it, right? <laughs> so there's, there's not only the hero's call to adventure, which we all love, which is why we play video games where we're heroes and then watch movies where we're heroes and then watch TV shows where we're maybe heroes. Um, <clears throat> and um, taking seriously the fact that perhaps what the call is is how things call out for your attention. Just yeah. as Peterson says that the golden snitch is your interest and just as St. Augustine said that the Bible in the voice of a young boy said, Labe tam biblion kai lege, you know, pick up, take and read, take and read. Yeah, take and read, pick up the book and read it, you know? And uh, it's like your interest is attracted to certain things. Your attention is attracted to certain things. And I'm not necessarily saying the Joseph Campbell, you have to follow your bliss, but I am more saying something like, you need to face the things in your life that cause you fear because there's information in them. And that's why you fear them because there's something unknown that is mixed with the negative unknown in whatever it is you fear. You only see the fact that it could potentially hurt you or is threatening. You don't see what it could teach you. But on the other hand, you also need to pursue the things you desire or, or hold in high esteem. You need, um, naturally you will feel admiration for those people who embody virtues which you wish to embody yourself, which potentially you could embody. And so I would say you need to pay attention to yourself. Yeah. What are you neglecting consciously right now? Ask yourself, yeah. what am I neglecting? See if an answer or two pops up. Wait a moment. Surely it will. Um, also, what are you truly interested in and what do you admire in others? doesn't even have to be something they say. doesn't even have to be something that you can put into words. You should try really hard, though, to yeah, put it into words. Right? It's like once you, once you have that call, you, there's like an element of willpower. Then too, that's so like, that's the concentrating. I see us as yeah. birds of prey, like falcons with sharp sight. We're circling around something trying to find it. So if I say, what is it about that guy that makes me admire him? And we want to focus on that. Say it's Arnold Schwarzenegger. You're like, well, he's really strong. Well, he's really tall. Well, he's Austrian. Well, he has a big gap in his teeth. Well, he was a governor. Well, he's really successful. Well, he's a businessman. It's like, well, what is it about him? It's like, well, it seems like he can transform the reality around him in order to be a success. Uh, Maybe that's what I like about him because it's not just that he was big and strong and had this and that and came from a different place. It's that, it's that he didn't have everything, but then he did. And how'd he do that? Or something like that. That's how I consider the concentration. And that's why we should talk through these things. Not only the things we fear, and we did that some last night, which was interesting. I was, I was, I was talking to you as if you were sort of a therapist, which was great, which is a good way to talk to another person if they're willing, I think. Um, but that 
you're circling in, honing in on what it is that you are aiming at when yeah. you acknowledge and focus your attention, especially with another person who will then focus their attention so you know it's real on, on some, some issue which is either anxiety producing or, or something that has captured your imagination or attention. Um, and that in paying attention to that in yourself, you can draw other people's attention in to help you, which also helps them to pay attention to themselves. And then you can help them in the same way, creating sort of a positive feedback loop. Like we, I would say have been doing in this conversation where we are focusing more and more on the things we both uniquely care about by sharing them with each other and parsing them out together. Sort of like we are putting together an abstract version of one of those thousand piece puzzles together. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, yeah. We are helping to map reality together by sharing what it is that we're both interested in and afraid of. True. We have, maybe we'll have to have a fear episode where we, we actually admit things that scared us in literature or in video games or in life and uh, uh, see what information yeah. still exists there and whether we can parse it out and whether any of the listeners uh, appreciate that. Um, yeah. Totally. That does seem to be part of why we tell horror stories and ghost stories. Zombies. You something about zombies too. Yeah, yeah, I was talking about that with students. It's like, why do they eat your brain? Because they can't think and they don't want you to either. Um, <laughs> so no undead people who just take the opinions of the past and don't think for themselves. That's what a zombie is. And that's why in the 60s, zombies started coming about. And especially now why we have so many zombie movies. Um, and also I would say that's essentially what a vampire is too. It sucks out the blood of the living in order to continue to live, though it's long past due for its own death. And that's like an old out-of-date idea. Yeah. Or, or an ideology which takes the zombies, right? It's, it is an opinion that takes the place of their own brains, which they use to eat the brains of others. Um, don't think. That's evil. Just join. Well, you know, not, not for us. Not for us. We're going we're gonna to hold up in our, our safe in our safe space in the mall or whatever. Get my baseball bat out and my records and start hurling them at zombies. Yeah, there we yeah. go. Yes, cricket very bat, good. I guess it is. Cricket bat, sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very Casey Jones, very Casey Jones. Um, right. And actually, yeah, so, yeah, we, that's funny. That makes me think of Ninja Turtles. I, I do own the book, and I was thinking about the phenomenon of the teenage mutant Ninja Turtles and how we should talk about that sometime. But I know you have some time constraints today, and I know that we're talking about using the day in, in the best possible way. And so does this seem like a good place to get off? Yeah, this is a good, good pause button for now. And then uh, I do want to talk Totoro next week if, if you get around to it. So yes, yes, yes. I'll be, I'll be making sure to get around to it today. Yes, I know yeah. we've promised the listeners on SideQuest to continue going through Hayao Miyazaki and to go through Totoro. And even though Porco Rosso which is not technically by Miyazaki, but is put out by Studio Ghibli, is calling my name. I will finish Totoro uh, Totoro in its proper times. Yeah, Totoro first, and then we can talk about it, and we'll be back on video for the side quests. Sounds good. All right, well, thank you for coming on. And again, everybody, uh, please subscribe and like Bookworm Games. Um, Wes has five episodes on there now and a new conversation about the philosophy of video games uh, sure. with a friend of his. I, I, I'd say that's just 
that's not everything they talk about, but that's something they get into in the idea of open worlds and traveling between <clears throat> one quest and another and how, how that relates to our lives, how when we finish one quest, when we accomplish a goal, we're sort of left in a dark wood and what do we do next? And they consider that in the context of Zelda and as well as talking about Earthbound and well, it's very interesting stuff. So I hope I hope people go over and like Bookworm Games, um, share your content and listen. It's all very interesting. Yeah, I appreciate it. <clears throat> yeah. All right. Well, I'll see you later, Wes. Okay. Have a good one. <laughs>